Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Glad that you're joining us today. And uh, before we get started, something that, man, I've just, I've been thinking about it all week, and I just wanted us to be able to spend some time as a community to do this together, uh, to pray for our schools. I know that there's, which all the districts around us are all starting at different times. I know uh, Jasper County has already started and some of the others nearby. I think St. Anthony has already started. Um, But Unit 40 uh, is going to be starting this week, and I think Shelbyville soon after. And I know a lot of them, I'm not, it's hard to keep track of all the dates. But I know during this time, man, my heart has just been going out to teachers, to administrators. I've been thinking of the parents and the students, just as many of them are figuring out, are we going in person? Are we going to do remote? Are we going to do home? homeschooling. And then, of course, if both parents are working, how do we do distance? And if we're forced to do distance, what does that look like? And so I know there's just a lot of uncertainty, but one thing I am certain about is that God is in control. No matter how uncertain we may be about things going on here, he's in control and we can put our trust in him no matter what. And so I just want us to have that opportunity as a church community to come come around many of the parents and students who are a part of our community, as well as many of the teachers and administrators as well. Um, So let's just take a moment to pray. Father, oh Lord, we love you. God, a thing that you have shown me over and over again in this last season of my life is that you are good and you bring forth good. No matter the circumstances, difficult or not, you are good and you bring forth good. And so that is my prayer and my hope for this time as school is, for some, has relaunched, is about to relaunch, and as there's uncertainty of what that looks like, whether it's in person or remote or families are choosing to homeschool. Man, God, I pray for grace over the situation. Father, pour out your grace, pour out your mercy. God, I pray for patience uh, for everyone involved in this as teachers and administrators are scrambling to figure things out. And God, I just, I pray you give them an extra dose of energy from your spirit to not be Uh, worn out and torn down by this process. God, I pray for parents as they're figuring out what is best for their family and as they juggle work and school and all the things that complicate that. God, just give them grace as they walk through that. God, we put our trust in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now with the school year about to start, one thing that I began to realize, which of course for most of us who are just working, doesn't really change in the summer, but of course having the kids added into the element of like the daily rush in the morning. Like we all experience that where trying to get everybody ready on time and get them out the door by a particular time because we know how long it takes to get to point A or point B and if there's traffic and how that can all complicate it. And one thing that we always notice, or at least I've noticed this, is that any time I'm in a rush, things seem to take longer, don't they? You hit every single red light, and I'm like, how have I hit four or five red lights in a row the one time I'm going to be late, or I fear I'm going to be late to church, or to, you know, take the kids to school, or to work, or, you know, whatever. Um, And then, of course, it's like that one time I'm running late is when the big semi pulls out in front of me, and this, you know, downshifting and all that stuff and or it's the person from out of town who has no idea where they're going and they're driving like they have no idea where they're going and they're stopping and spending 20 minutes looking at every sign trying to figure out which way they're supposed to turn and you're like seriously I'm gonna like I have to be to work in two minutes and like this 
Well, of course, I was, it's funny because I was thinking about this the other day as we're getting ready to talk about the school hustle and bustle. And I actually, funny enough, came across an article where psychologists were talking about this phenomena where like, you feel like all these things pile up whenever you're rushing. And in the article, the psychologists were talking about how it's all in your head. There is no greater obstacles preventing you from getting where you need to go when you're in a rush. It is entirely in your head. It's just normally when you're not in a rush, you don't notice all of those red lights. You sitting at a stoplight for 30 seconds isn't that big of a deal because you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or what you're going to do as soon as you get to the office. You're not in a rush. So he said, for the most part, your perception almost kind of defines your reality in those moments. And it's funny how that is. Just a little bit of a shift in focus can make such a difference in your life. Just, you know, your focus can literally change everything. And so this is important for us to know as we continue in this three-week series that we've been doing uh, called The Truth About Us. And it's based on the book of the same name written by our very own Darren Hansen's brother, Brant Hansen, which I also am not getting any royalties for his book. So you do not have to buy this book. It is on Amazon, but don't buy it because I'm not, I'm, Darren, I'm not getting any, no, I'm not getting any royalties on it. So don't worry about it. But in this book, we're exploring the very good news that we are not nearly as good as we think we are which makes the good news even better that in all the ways that we are as bad as we could possibly conceive, God has met us in our midst, met us in our mess by sending his son Jesus so we can stop pretending to be better than we are and actually fall in love with the one who is good. And so Darren kicked off the series last week talking about how all of us, literally from the most religious person gone to church your whole life to the least religious pagan partier, are all not nearly as good as we think we are. He went on to show how we often fool ourselves with all kinds of delusions and biases to make ourselves think that we are better and more moral people when the truth is we're not. Because we do that so we can give ourselves a break when it comes to righteousness. And, of course, that break that we give ourselves is called self-righteousness. Darren talked about how the definition of righteousness, which is actually in the New Testament, it's the Greek word dikaiosune, and it's, uh, it's actually a judicial term. A lot of people know that it's a, righteousness is a judicial term, meaning like whenever you're in the courtroom, the judge will, you know, when he's judging between two people, he will declare one of them dekaiosune, meaning you are right, declared to be in the right in this situation, and you're allowed to go free. And so whenever we say we're righteous, it means we're right with God. Now, of course, when our behavior, which always does fall short of being right with God, we create our own standard in our own mind, and we meet that standard in our own eyes, and which is why it's called self-righteousness. And so today we're going to talk about how, how we tend to respond to this very bad news that we are not nearly as good as we think we are. Now, not to repeat Darren last week, but Darren covered the bad news of the good news that we are, in fact, pretty bad. We do and think terrible things, and then we justify ourselves you know, justify our actions mostly to ourselves, but also to other people. And in Romans 3, uh, the Apostle Paul pummels this idea home in verse 10, where he writes this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So while we live in a world that we try to convince ourselves, and you've probably said this yourself, or you've probably heard people say this of like, basically a good person. Have you ever said that about yourself or about someone else? Like, they're ba- I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm basically a good person. That according to the scriptures, it's not true. That we are not basically good people. We're actually basically bad. And even Jesus himself tells us this thing. You think, the one who loves us, the one who loved us so much that he died for us, this is what he says about us in Matthew 7, 11. He's talking about how the Father longs to give us good gifts. And he says this, If you then, though you are, what's that word? Evil. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, did you realize that the Son of God was throwing out some shade in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? He's like just kind of throwing that, you know, under the current saying, you know, he's talking about giving and receiving gifts and asking the Father for things, but underneath it, he throws out a little idea. Did you know you're evil? He says, he's talking to his disciples whenever he says this, everybody who's listening. He wasn't just talking to the bad people. He's talking to everybody. If you, though you are evil, did you know that Jesus called us evil? You know why he did it? Because it's the truth about us. We are far worse than we could possibly imagine. And if things weren't bad enough, it turns out that our response to that bad news complicates things and makes it even worse. Rather than owning our broken condition, what do we do? We excuse and we explain. We justify and we dismiss. We try to deceive ourselves and other people that we are not quite as bad as some might think. Or another thing we do, we compare right? Has anyone ever practiced comparative morality? I feel like I, at many points in my life, have become an expert at comparative morality, where if you've ever uttered one of these phrases, you've practiced comparative morality. Well, at least I don't fill in the blank. Cheat on my wife, cheat on my taxes, rob people, kill people, Or maybe you say something like this, at least I'm not as bad as a Democrat, a Republican, a terrorist. Fill in the blank however you want. We all have those categories that we use, that we compare ourselves thinking, if I can show that I'm just not quite as bad as the other person, then somehow that will let me off. We think as long as we're not as bad as whoever fits the bill, we must be good. We excuse our failure in righteousness by comparing ourselves to someone lower than ourselves. And this is what we end up doing. When righteousness fails, self-righteousness takes over. In any given moment where I feel like I might have fallen short of the standard that God has set for me, what I do is I find someone lower and I point them out to God and say, well, at least I'm not like him. At least I'm not like her. And we think that God's going to be like, oh, you know what? You've done some bad things, but that person, oh, I had no idea. You're good. Don't worry about it. So in order to avoid judgment, we pass judgment on others in order to justify ourselves. And so Jesus, he warned about doing this often. 
That was kind of his primary thing against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He warned about the dangers of self-righteousness. And there's a parable that I want to look at today in Luke chapter 18, where he he kind of tells this parable of showing the danger of self-righteousness and how it can poison the soul. So in Luke uh, chapter 18, verse 9, it starts. Verse 9 says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, I love the way Luke does this because in most of the, like the other gospels, Matthew and Mark and John, oftentimes there's teachings and there's stories, but we're not really told the meaning of it or why it's being told. It's almost like the gospel writers are like, no, you need to figure it out yourself. But like Luke comes along at certain parts of his gospel, he just flat out comes out and says, hey, this is why the story is being told. And so right here, Luke is explaining this story is told to those who are confident in their own righteousness and they look down on everyone else. So they're self-righteous and they practice comparative morality. They're comparing themselves to other people. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So immediately Jesus, he sets up this dichotomy, these, uh, you know, two different people that kind of represent at least what was commonly understood at the time, kind of two different groups because the Pharisee, you know, represented the religious people of the day. You know, they were the guardians of scripture, the protectors of truth. They were far more spiritually disciplined than any other group at the time, that they were the religious rock stars of the day. So you see them, the average Jew saw the Pharisees and thought esteem, that if I were to compare myself spiritually to them, well, I'd be found wanting, so I'm not going to compare myself to them. They're the people. No, that's what I'm aspiring to. And then there was the tax collector, most notably, likely a Jewish tax collector, because this all took place in a synagogue. And those people were considered the lowest of the low. Not only did they abuse their position to rob people, to overcharge them on their taxes, but when they did it, it wasn't just for them. It was actually to benefit their Roman overseers, this foreign nation who had come in and conquered their area, stolen their land, and were treating them like slaves in many ways. So it's pretty simple to see how people viewed these two groups when Jesus began the parable. One was loved and the other was hated. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisee, he comes into either the temple or the synagogue or whatever, but notice that in his prayer, he doesn't ask for anything. I always thought that was an interesting prayer. All his prayer consisted of was flaunting his religious behavior before God as if God didn't see what he was doing or thinking, and then comparing himself to other people around him, saying, I'm not like tax, or I'm not like sinners and adulterers and these people are like this tax collector. And so in this parable, we see the Pharisee demonstrating one of the greatest traps the enemy lays for anybody who is of the faith. And I need you to dial in with me on this because this is very important, especially for those who have been following Jesus for a very long time. The biggest trap that the enemy lays for us is to become asleep in the light. He wants you to become asleep 
in the light. Rather than the Pharisee seeking after God and crying out to him for all the areas where he might have known or even not known how he has failed God on a daily basis, he instead justifies himself with the phrase, at least I'm not like, fill in the blank, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, especially this guy back here who won't even come up to the altar. He's like hiding in the back, his head's down, he won't even look up. He, you know, it's like, it's this terrible thing. Glad I'm not like this guy. Like you can literally hear the disdain and self-righteousness in this prayer, which I wonder the way the story is told, is he praying this prayer out loud? Like, can the tax collector actually hear this Pharisee saying, I'm glad I'm not like this guy? And he's like, me? Never once a request, never once a plea, no supplication, no intercession, praying for others, no concern, no desire. And here's why. See, our self-righteousness blinds us to our need for God. When I focus all my time and energy comparing myself to others and justifying my behavior to myself and others and God, I don't have time left for me to take a good, honest look at my heart. When I'm too busy looking down on others, I don't have time to look up to my heavenly Father. I never notice my own sins when I'm too busy focused on the sins of other people. And this is why Jesus called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs, unmarked graves. He's saying you look good on the outside. You look like you have it together, but on the inside, you're dead. And like an unmarked grave, people walk by and they have no idea how many in this room have maybe fooled people for years with your religious behavior, making people think you look a certain way when inside you're dead. See, self-righteousness is about justifying ourselves while judging everyone else around me. And it is far by far the most dangerous thing about the spiritual life. And we see this truth in how Jesus, he, how he contrasts the Pharisee to the tax collector. And he continues the parable, verse 13. But the tax collector, now there's a word of, that word but, that's a word of contrast, where he gives this whole picture of who the Pharisee was. And he says, but, meaning in contrast to what you just heard, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. How repentance kind of hurts. Now notice the contrast. One stood up by himself, the other's at a distance. One is brazenly flaunting his spiritual behavior for everyone to see, and the other one won't even look up to heaven crying out in his shame, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let me tell you today, that is a prayer God will answer. That is a prayer that God wants to hear. And so these two people in this story, Jesus tells, they couldn't be more opposite of each other. See, the tax collector, he's standing in the presence of God, very aware of his own sinfulness. And so in this moment, he's faced with a choice 
Do I fill this spiritual void, this spiritual vacuum that I'm very, very aware of, the fact that he won't approach the altar, he has his head bound, he's beating his chest. He knows there's a problem. He knows there's a vacuum, there's an emptiness, there's a space there. He knows there's something wrong. And so he's faced with a choice in that moment. Do I be like this other guy I see in front of me? Put on a front? Judge everyone else around me? Or do I lean into that spiritual vacuum in my heart and realize that the answers to my brokenness are not in my ability to pretend that I'm something I'm not, but instead to get good and hungry for something that I can't give myself? You see, the tax collector learned a key secret of the kingdom of God that day, a primary principle of the spiritual life, and Jesus wants those who are sitting around judging others looking down on them, flaunting their own righteousness. He wanted every one of them to hear it, the truth, that where our goodness ends, our desperation should begin. The spiritual life isn't about polishing myself up as much as possible to look good to others. It's about coming clean, maybe for the first time in my life, and admit that I need help that I can't fix the brokenness in me. I can't fix my problems that I need a savior to deliver me from my sins. And see, this is what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. We often scathe over this and oftentimes because we didn't know what the word meant. In Matthew 5, verse 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Remember, that word righteousness in Greek, it means dikaiosune. Blessed are those who yearn, who hunger, who long to be made right with God. I tell you that they are the ones who will be declared in the right in the heavenly courts. God will have mercy on that person because they do not trust in their own man-made righteousness, but instead look to the righteousness that can only come from God given to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here I am today pleading with all of you, don't let self-righteousness try to take the place of desperation. It won't fill you. It'll only leave you empty and tired and broken. But when we embrace desperation, like the tax collector, notice how the story ends. Verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, so Jesus was really good at telling subversive stories because at the beginning of the story, you're thinking like, okay, we're gonna see how awesome the Pharisees are and the poor tax collector, God's gonna judge him and he's gonna cream him like, he shouldn't have made all those decisions. He shouldn't have ripped off his own people. He shouldn't have allied with big government like he shouldn't have done that. But Jesus reverses the story and says, no, I tell you that the tax collector walked away justified before God, not the other one, which would have just utterly shocked the Pharisees to hear that. And see, this was Paul's same conclusion in Romans 3, verse 22, where he wrote this. This is Paul reflecting 30-plus years after Jesus rose from the dead, and he concises the good news of the gospel in a very simple phrase where he says, this righteousness, this declaration of being right with God, this dikaiosune, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You can be declared right with God 
if you just believe in Jesus. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, meaning the Jews who were super religious and the pagans, you know, the, the, the Gentiles. He's like, you think that one of them is going to be first in line, but he's like, but the truth is, it's not. There's no difference between them. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and we are all justified. Now that we're justified, it's similar. It comes from the same root word as righteousness, dikaiosune. Uh, I've actually heard a, a scholar say that maybe a better way to see the connection between righteousness and justified would be to retranslate justified as, it's not a real word, but I love it, as rightified. For those who have been rightified by faith, He says, and all are justified, are rightified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul says, that's it. That is the good news. Now, the bad news about it is we're all under the judgment of sin, but the good news is you don't have to make the meal yourself. God has provided the meal. You just have to come hungry and be willing to say yes and eat and drink deeply. And so this good news, it means two things for us. First, I think it means that spiritual maturity, and we get this, I've gotten this wrong over the years. Spiritual maturity means greater dependence on God's mercy, not less. I feel like for a long time, I almost thought like, yes, you need the gospel to be saved, to have my sins forgiven, but like, Isn't it like as you mature and grow in Christ, like you begin to stand on your own two feet and you become more like Jesus and you can kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? And I'm realizing more and more that's me taking our fiercely independent culture and uh, diluting the gospel with it, making that somehow I can create the gospel into a self-help gospel. I might need a little bit of help getting started, but I can mostly do it on my own once I get going. But the truth is, and I remember my mentor told me this whenever I was a teenager, I kind of understood it, but I feel like I understand it in a way now that I never did then. Tim Maxson always said to me, Tyler, you never graduate from the gospel. You never graduate from it. You never grow beyond it to where you don't need it. It's just a deeper and deeper application of that same good news in your life every single day. It is like an onion that needs to be peeled and you get to greater depths that are stronger and stronger. And like an onion, I feel like the more layers I peel off, the more tears there are because I realize how terrible of a person I actually am and how deeply I need to be transformed by the gospel and that the work is not done yet. And this is why I feel like I understand now more than ever what Paul meant when he wrote in Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He carries it on to completion, meaning that Jesus, a friend of mine always worded the gospel like this, where he says, Jesus is putting this world and our lives back together, and he's not giving up until he's done. Aren't you glad about that? Isn't that good news? That Jesus is putting your life back together and he is not going to give up until he's done. He is going to carry it on to completion. I need Jesus every single day to put my life back together. So that's the first thing. 
Spiritual maturity means more dependence on God's mercy, not less, meaning that I have to continually live a life of repentance. I didn't repent once 20 years ago when I gave my life to Christ and now I don't need it anymore. I have to live with a heart of repentance continually as God reveals new areas that he needs to put my life back together. So that's the first thing. Spiritual maturity means greater dependency on God's mercy, not less. But I think it also means this. God is desperately waiting for us to be desperate for him. This is the story of the prodigal son. The father waiting on the porch, getting up and running when he sees the the son coming. He's waiting for you to become desperate. He's desperately waiting for you to be desperate enough to come home. And he's not going to make you explain or justify or re-earn. He runs out and wraps you in his arms, willing to receive you back. All because of what Christ has done on the cross, not because of anything you've done or will do in the future. See, once we realize how absolutely destitute we are without him, that is when God can move most in our lives. When we come to the end of our goodness, we're faced with a choice. Do I continue in my striving and my straining, trying to pretend I'm better than I am, building up these walls of self-righteousness? Or do I let desperation for healing and forgiveness drive me to the source of all things, which is Jesus Christ? God is desperately waiting for us to be desperate for him. And so the question that I want to end with today that I want to ask you and give you an opportunity to respond to is are you desperate? Are you hungry? Because if you are, he's waiting, desperately waiting for you to return to him. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray a prayer in a moment and I'm gonna invite you to pray it with me. And maybe if it's your first time here and if it is your first time here, I hope it's not your last time here. I hope you keep coming back. I hope this was the moment. This was why God was leading you here all along was because you knew you needed to be rightified with God. You needed to get things right. You needed to repent of your sin and you needed to turn to Jesus to be forgiven. And that's why you're here. And it's just the beginning of a whole journey. It's not the end. It's actually the beginning of a process. So maybe that's you. You're here and you realize I've never done that. I've never been made right with God. I've never been justified just as if I've never sinned. That's how God views us when we're justified, just as if I've never sinned. Or maybe you're come from a camp where you grew up in church, you grew up in religion, and you've been here for 20 years or you've been in church for 40, 50 years, and you realize all of it has been empty religion. All of it has been a pretending a doing the right thing, going to the right church, or believing the right ideas, but I'm dead inside if I'm honest about it. I'm not being transformed. I don't look any more like Jesus than I did 40 years ago. And I realize I've never actually surrendered myself to him. I've just been playing a game. I've been pretending I'm an unmarked grave and no one knows. You can pray this prayer too and begin a whole new process to where you are made right with God. If you fall in any of those categories or anywhere in between, I invite you to bow your head and pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, I'm not good. 
I'm not good and I never will be in my own strength. And so Jesus, I need you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead physically from the grave on the third day. I believe it. I believe it and I put my trust in that, not in my own goodness, but in that to pay for my sins. And so I turn from my sins. I turn from my old way of living. I don't want to live the way that I used to. I want to follow you. I want to be changed and I want to be transformed. Forgive me of all of my sins, Jesus. I turn from them. Send your Holy Spirit to come live inside me. Fill me with your spirit so that I can live in your power, not my own, to live for you for the rest of my days. I trust in you and you alone, Christ. I give my heart to you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.